Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we saddle up and ride hell for leather into the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. Back with me today is University of Texas at Arlington's Professor of Mexican and Latin American Literature and Culture, Christopher Conway. Also joining us is Antoinette Soule, who is the co-editor, along with Chris, of their recently released scholarly reference, The Comic Book Western, New Perspectives on a Global Genre. When not producing scholarly volumes such as Textual Promiscuities, 18th Century Critical Rewriting, and MLA Approaches to Teaching the French Revolution, Tony is the Vice Provost for Faculty Affairs and Professor of French in the Department of Modern Languages at the University of Texas at Arlington. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining me today on the Six-Gun Justice Podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for hanging out with me today. I just love those titles, research-produced books that reek of intelligence. (laughs) You got to have a draw for someone to actually go out and read the book. It's a very niche interest at times. Hey, Tony, that textual promiscuity, that sounds sexy. That's actually a joke. Someone asked me what my dissertation was and said, textual promiscuities. And they said, oh, we like that. So that's how it became the title. (laughs) Tony, where did this interest in the Western genre and Western comics come from for you? Oh, I've always been interested in the Westerns. I loved watching Westerns with my dad. My mom, not so much. She would leave the room. Comics, books, all of that. So from a very young age, what were your influences? What do you remember from back in those days that really impressed you? Bat Masterson is one of them. (laughs) The TV shows, Bonanza, Maverick, those sorts of shows. And then I liked the big Westerns that I'd watch with my dad, like Rio Bravo or Stagecoach or El Dorado, things like that. You had a run-in, or at least have come up against Gene Barry, the star of Bat Masterson in the past. Yes, one of my stupider moments. I grew up in Beverly Hills. We were at Nate and Al's, which is a deli on Beverly Drive. I walked in, and there was Gene Barry, who was my hero from watching all those shows when I was little. So I don't know what happened, but I ended up sitting on his lap. I was about 15, but yeah. (laughs) And it scarred you for life, right? No, I had other scars, but (laughs) I was just happy to meet Bat Masterson. When we meet our icons, it's always dangerous. Do they spoil their image with us or are they as they seem? No, they usually spoil their image. (laughs) It's better not to meet them. I agree with you. Now, Chris, you and I have talked before about Western and Mexican films. When did you first become aware of the global impact of Western comics in particular? It was about 12 or 13 years ago when I started collecting Mexican comic books by buying them off of eBay. I had bought Mexican comic books in Tijuana when I was a graduate student at the University of California, San Diego in the 1980s. And I would go down to Tijuana from time to time. And just out of curiosity, I would buy these bagfuls of Mexican comics for two or three bucks and bring them home and just look at them and be fascinated by them. But after graduate school, I didn't really think about Mexican comics for a long time. And then I started collecting them on eBay. And I noticed that the cheapest ones to buy were Mexican Westerns. And so I started buying those in particular. And the more I bought, the more fascinated I became by them. My intent was not to study them at first. It was just to have a hobby. But after a few years of collecting these comics and building an archive, I said to myself, I think there's something interesting here. 
how did you both come together to collaborate on the comic book Western tome? And really, how did you find those versed enough in the genre to write different chapters? The French are big on their comics. And I had been teaching a course in French. And one of the genres that I taught was the Western. So Chris knew that I was interested in Bande dessinée, And we just started talking and he showed me some of his comics. And Chris always has uh, lots of ideas. And he said, let's do a collection. Yeah, that's right. In terms of the issue of finding experts to talk about comic book Westerns from around the world. Because it really is a niche genre. Yes. And I would say the following. There really aren't too many experts on international Westerns out there. So what we did is we went out and found either experts in comics from a particular national tradition or experts in Westerns from a particular national tradition and asked them to do some crossover work. For example, my friend David Rio from the University of the Basque Country in Spain, he works on contemporary Westerns. He does not work on comics. But I called him up and I said, could you do something on Spanish comic book Westerns? It was a little bit of a reach for him to work on comic book genre, but he had a wealth of experience thinking about Spanish Westerns already. And similar with our contributor, Dr. Rebecca Suter, she is an expert on manga comics, not specifically Westerns, but she had that expertise in comics. And so we had a lot of our contributors doing kind of crossover work, but there was always a specific training that they had, either in Westerns or in comics, that enabled them to bridge that gap. That's great, because one of the things that fascinates me, and in fact, our next episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast is going to be looking at the Western genre around the world, because Germany and Sweden and Australia and England and so many other countries have a rich history of their own indigenous Western literature and films. And I want to explore that more. But what was interesting to me about the comic book Western is the book is subtitled New Perspectives on a Global Genre. So can you give us a quick understanding of what the old perspectives were and why these new perspectives are important? I think the old perspective is that it's American and it's the West and we set out the tropes for it. But we find the mythology of the West applies to a lot of different cultures. And they use that sometimes as a mask to avoid censorship, but easily recognizable local flavor of Western tropes. And we found that all over the world, in India, in Mongolia, in Spain, Germany, France. Yeah, and I think the old perspective is also international Westerns are merely copies of American Westerns, rather than maybe more complicated meditations on local identity, on local Polish identity or local Spanish identity or Italian. Yeah. When you're talking about using the Western comic book as a way to avoid censorship, does this mean whatever country is doing this is making a political statement through the Western comic book, but is trying to stay out of trouble by being overt about it? Are these subversive comics? A lot of times they are. I'm thinking of our contributor, Simone Castaldi, wrote about comics and how it evolved when they were criticizing fascism or the current governmental environment. And they were exploring issues that they couldn't talk about openly or the moral censorship that came in almost every country around the late 40s, early 50s, where there's a clampdown saying that the violence is going to corrupt children. And you have people writing around that or through that or using different ways to get their messages across. For example, 
David Rio, whose chapter is titled A Spanish View of the American West, El Coyote and his comic magazine, is talking also about the fascist regime of that period, the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, and the ways in which this iconic comic book, El Coyote, is forcing, to some degree, the ideology of the state, but also cutting a little bit against the grain by adopting the iconography of the American West and the romance of the American mm-hmm. West in a period of time when Franco's relationship with the United States was very fraught because the United States knew Franco had been an ally of Hitler before the war, that they had a relationship. And so the rapprochement between Franco and the United States was something that came about in the 1950s, but it was a very delicate, symbolic dance, so to speak, to talk and use American iconography in Spain in that historical period. All right. So with the groundwork laid, let's stampede the cattle and get to the heart of our feature. Before we look individually at the many different countries, what is it that has made the Western comic as widely traveled and enduring outside of America? Is it just the fact that the Western seems to speak to everybody? I was just talking to Chris about this a few minutes ago, is that there are a lot of different influences we all share. For example, the literary influences that start very early. You've got Voltaire, who writes about a Caucasian French child who gets kidnapped by Indians, by the Hurons, and it's called L'Ingenue, and that's in the mid-18th century. Then you have Chateaubriand with Atala, and you have Natty Bumpo with Fenimore Cooper, and you have all sorts of common sources that we read. There's been a fascination with Westerns and the West and the expansion of the world since then. What we're saying is those are traditional touchstones. Yes. And then you add cinema and you add TV. All of these things were shown all over the world. I'd like to add, I was surprised when we started working on this, Tony, at how important the Western was as a narrative genre in the 19th century. I was aware of the impact of the Western in the 20th century, but when we started researching the introduction to this book and we really delved into the 1800s, I was shocked at how audiences in Europe, in Spain, France, Germany, Sweden, Norway, you name it, were so primed for comic book Westerns by reading so many translations of the Leatherstocking Tales by Fenimore Cooper, but also local novels written by European writers modeled on Fenimore Cooper. Fenimore Cooper was a superstar in the 19th century, And people like Karl May, who wrote the old Shatterhand novels, and many other imitators were blanketing the European reading scene with cheap novels and adventure stories set on the frontier. What was appealing about that genre is it's a very elemental genre about man versus landscape, right? There's something, in my opinion, universal. I don't know if you would agree with that, Tony. But this idea of man versus nature, quote unquote, is what makes the Western so elemental. Yeah, I like that because now there's a sort of a renaissance in French Westerns and it's not man versus nature. It's woman versus nature. They're doing a lot of comics on women's role in the West. But to go back to the origins of comics, you had, at least in France, the Western. You had regular French characters that explore the New World. So you had uh, Famille Fenouard, 
in the 1880s that come to America. You have Zigen Pus that go around the world and they're in America. That's in the 1920s. In the 1930s, you had Hergé's Tintin who comes to America. And even in 1827, you had what might be the first inventor of the comic, Rudolf Topfer, who's a Swiss guy who had his character meet up with Native Americans. The French tradition with Western comic books, I want to talk about a little later as well, because from the French Western comic book culture, there are two of my favorite characters that cut across this landscape. But I like the term you use in the book of transnational histories in talking about the impact of Western comics on other individual countries. So with the legacy of the Spaghetti Western, Italy is tied to the Western genre, possibly more so than any other country outside of the United States. Did this obsession from the Spaghetti Westerns with the balletic violence extend to the Western comics? Did they go from kids' books to more adult adventures around the world? Yes, yes. I would say that one of the first ones in France would be Blueberry by Giraud and Charlier. I would say that they jumped on that bandwagon and they were responsible for one of the first comic anti-hero cowboys or westerns. Yeah, Tony in her chapter talks about this idea of the countercultural Western in the case of Blueberry. And I was interested in seeing the same motif in our chapter about Polish comics by my friend Marek Parrish. In that chapter, he does talk about how in the 1970s and 1980s into the 90s, Polish graphic novels are very much in dialogue with the tradition of the Spaghetti Western. And I touch on that briefly as well in my chapter about Mexican comics, where El Libro Vaquero, a comic from the mid-1970s that became the most important comic of the late 20th century in Mexico, is also very much in dialogue with a grittier, more sexualized, more violent aesthetic. Yeah, we're talking about adult westerns as opposed to juvenile westerns. Chris, we talked last episode about the wide cultural history of the Mexican western in movies, and we did talk about the comic book western in Mexico. But just to touch on it again, clearly the comic book in Mexico went well beyond the importation of American western comics. Yes, that's correct. I would characterize it as a process of digesting American influences, rearranging them, reinventing them, and remixing them with Mexican ones. One of the problems Mexican creators of comics faced in the 1970s is it was a competitive market. They were tired of the same old Bonanza-type kitty Western comic book, and they wanted to up the ante. They wanted to sexualize and make the Western more mature and more appealing to an adult audience. We see this in film. We also see it in comics. The creator of El Libro Vaquero, Rafael Marquez Torres, when he was asked in more than one interview, what inspired you to make El Libro Vaquero? He said, I was sick and tired of the Roy Rogers comics. I get his point. Rafael Marquez Torres wanted something sexier. He wanted something grittier. He wanted something hard hitting. And interestingly, he said, I wanted to be these things because I wanted to be more Mexican. So he made a connection between this kind of violent Mexican identity. And he thought that making a comic have those qualities would make it more Mexican. For lack of a better term, what I call the Marvelization of the Western comic, where Marvel took over that whole genre. There were some from DC, but Marvel was driving it. And all of those comic books became the same. The characters were interchangeable. 
I think that's what led to the death of the Western comic book in America. But around the world, the popularity of the Western comic book still exists. They're still writing and drawing them, and they're still publishing them, and people are still reading them. The tradition of the iconic characters that we find in Westerns, because of the replication of the same sorts of images, and you said that they were interchangeable, is it wipes out and leaves the skeleton, the shell. And that's one of the reasons why I think it was so popular, is people could use the mythology of the West and adapt it to what they wanted to talk about. I was in Spain five or six years ago. I went to a few comic book stores, and I was just blown away by the number of Western comics. In the comic book stores there, we've got Spanish Western comics, but they're also selling translations of French and German and English comics. When we talk about Western comics in Europe, it's not just national markets. It's very much a continental market where the Danish are reading Blueberry and Lucky Luke, and the Spanish are reading the same titles, and it's a continental market. And one of the interesting things about talking about American comic book westerns is in Europe, it's not simply an issue of Europeans reading American comic books in translation, but the Europeans consuming a large number of European comic book westerns, independent of their interest in American westerns, the French used the Western to criticize capitalism and the American manifest destiny and the treatment of the native populations. In fact, recently there was a Lucky Luke graphic novel about the KKK. Isn't that yes, correct? Yes, he inherits a plantation in the South and he liberates all the slaves. It was lovely. Let's talk about Lucky Luke. I discovered him several years ago and became totally enamored with the series. It is so well written, so clever. For me, it is one of the best Western comics of all time, and it comes out of France. There's two branches. They're all very ironic and sharp. One is the funny side, the comic, and the more abstract, and that would be Lucky Luke. And then you've got the more realistic, but just as critical, Blueberry side. They are two different approaches, with Blueberry being an anti-hero and Lucky Luke playing more to a humorous way of putting the point across, chasing after the Dalton gang over and over again and things like that, whereas Blueberry is more of a straight-ahead, antisocial Western in some ways. Yes, yes. And their drawing styles are very different, too, that reflects the two different ways of looking at the Western world. So why do these two titles appear to have a far greater reach outside of where they were created? What pleases people is the cleverness of it. They're very smart. They're very intelligent stories. I'd like to jump in and say that my first reaction to that question is because they're excellent. I would also add that what might have been special about Blueberry when it first came out in the 60s and 70s was that it represented a comic book vision we really did not see in the United States, with the possible exception of EC Comics in the 1950s, which you know were very kind of iconoclastic types of comics, whether they be war comics or horror comics, or in some of the Western comics they did. We really didn't have that kind of comic in the 1960s in the United States. And what the United States was exporting to the rest of the world in the 60s and early 70s was basically Dell Comics in translation. And so when Blueberry bursts onto the scene with a kind of more realistic spaghetti Western type of aesthetic and theme, that's going to have an impact because it's new. Also, Blueberry was very serious. 
It always had a historical base. He starts out on the first page, usually with a panorama, but a huge explanation of the context in which it happened. That was very different as well. Again, the impact of those is further reaching than the impact of Western comics in some of the other countries. For instance, I was born and raised in England and was a big reader of the British boys comics, particularly the Hotspur. This was in the days before Marvel and DC invaded British comic shops. They were more broadsheet-sized comics. When I was eight, I immigrated with my parents to America, but for the next four years, my grandmother would roll up two months' worth of the weekly Hotspur and mail them my way. And to this day, I vividly remember many of the Western tales that appeared in the Hotspur. And I also remember them from many of the other British boys' comics as well. They were pretty much a standard. Do you know how the Western evolved in British comic? I'm not so familiar with that particular history, but our contributor who writes about British comics in our volume, Lee Broaden, who's done several excellent books about spaghetti westerns and contemporary westerns, his chapter is focused more on contemporary gothic and weird westerns in British comics. I've read a little bit on how British comics have represented characters like Billy the Kid and figures of that nature, but I haven't delved deeply enough to really understand in what ways those comics might have been reflecting a British sensibility, right? That's the question I always have when thinking about a Western from a different country. Okay, yes, I know this is a Western. I see the iconography. I see the themes and the look and the Monument Valley setting. But what's British about this? What's Spanish about this? What's Polish or Italian about this? The British comics in particular, the Western stories were written by people who had no idea what the Western was about. Even if they're writing about Buffalo Bill or Kit Carson or whoever it may be, the storylines are distinctly British. You have cowboys having tea in the afternoon. There's this disconnect (laughs) between the real true Americanism and just this, let's get something on paper. Wow, that's great. I had no idea about cowboy tea time. Cowboy tea time. (laughs) Yeah, but that allows people to recognize themselves and their lives in the iconography as well, in the stories. But I don't think it was intentional. I think they were just grasping, this is the way we do things in England, so it must be the way things were done in the West, which is a very superior British attitude, which comes to a lot of things. And I think it it was employed here. We're just going to put it down the way the British would do it, as opposed to the way it really is. Excellent point. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think they did that with the entire India, right? This is the way we do it. You're doing it this way. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the El Coyote comics and the Spanish view of the West. How does this play into the global perspective? What's fascinating about El Coyote, and David Rio did a fantastic job with this chapter, is that El Coyote is basically a Zorro knockoff, right? And there are so many characters like this in Spanish comic books and pulps and also in Mexican comics and pulps as well. This is a character who's based out of California, and he is continuously warring with and fighting against the Anglo-Americans who have taken over California after the U.S.-Mexico War of 1846. And so there's this dimension of the comic that relates to the reigning Spanish ideology of that moment under the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, which is this fetishization of Hispanic identity, 
the superiority of the Hispanic over the Anglo identity. And this is an ideological construct that is not exclusive to this period of time in Spain, because in the 19th century, some French intellectuals promoted this idea of Latin America And that's where the phrase Latino and all of these other words come out of that. And so what does this Latin thing have to do with France or with Spain? It was a way for French intellectuals and later on for Spanish to promote this idea that there's this essential unity between Catholic countries, the languages of which come from Latin. And the point of this is to counter the influence of Great Britain, the United States, and Germany. And so it's this idea that the Latins, whether we be French or Spanish, Mexican or Argentinians, we can create this unit of cultural power and solidarity against this other force, which is this Protestant block of countries with influence. And so this celebration of Hispanic identity is not new. It's not exclusive to the 20th century. It's to some degree an outgrowth of themes that we see in 19th century cultural history in Europe that relate to critiquing the United States, Great Britain, and Germany. So we've got this comic book, El Coyote, which makes the Anglo-Americans the villains, makes this aristocratic Hispanic or Spaniard the hero. And then you've got the Mexicans who are a separate entity in the comics. They're not the same as El Coyote. We talk about things getting lost in translation. When it comes to Western comic books that are translated into foreign languages, in Italy, for instance, their version of comics was different than the American version. At times, dialogue was added to the American comic books. They weren't translated directly because that was not what the market was used to in those areas. Did that happen outside of Italy or was it just Italy that did that? We know that it happened in Italy thanks to the work of a critic called Zanetti that we discuss a little bit in the introduction to our volume. And I'm trying to think here about other examples. Yes, we've got some examples that relate to one of the greatest European and Latin American comic book creations, which is Sergeant Kirk. Sergeant Kirk was a collaboration between an Argentinian socialist Marxist called Hector Germán Osterheld who has disappeared during the military dictatorship of the 1970s in Argentina, and Hugo Pratt, who is arguably one of Europe's most esteemed comic book artists and creators. Pratt fled Italy during the World War II period and was living in Argentina. He was collaborating with Osterheld, an Argentinian writer. Pratt was doing the illustrations. The comic they produced, Sergeant Kirk, became really popular in Europe. But what happened is Pratt left Argentina, returned to Italy, and started reprinting Sergeant Kirk comics. He translated the dialogue from Spanish into Italian, but he also added and took away dialogue. And this is something one of our contributors, Manuela Borzoni, she explores this issue in her chapter about Argentinian comic book westerns. We've got essentially one of the two artists involved in the making of Sergeant Kirk, an iconic title, basically redoing the dialogue and the writing in the comic and then reprinting it in Italy. And then those comics, Italian versions that have been altered of the Spanish originals are being translated into French and into English and into German and being redistributed throughout Europe. 
So when you study Sergeant Kirk, the question that comes up is, are you studying the original Argentinian version or the altered version by Hugo Pratt? We have this tension here. Who's the true author of Sergeant Kirk? Is it Osterheld? Is it Pratt? We see translations of foreign Western comics coming to America, Blueberry and Lucky Luke being two obvious choices. What other comics from outside the United States that have been translated into English would you say are worthy of seeking out and reading? I have to confess that I haven't read any translations in English. I just read them in French. <laughs> Show off. Oh, sorry. There's a, you're such a traitor, Tony. <laughs> I'm going to call the publisher have them take your name off the book. There's one comic that comes to mind, the Undertaker series. That's a yes, French yes. series. And is that in English? That is available in translation, as I recall. And then there's some graphic novels that have been translated into English by a graphic novelist called Lu Hui Fang. And her graphic novel is called, I don't want to try to pronounce it. L'odeur des garçons affamés. Which in English, how would you translate that? The smell of hungry boys. So that's a graphic novel that is available in English and it's critically acclaimed as well. I have to say, I just discovered a new author that I've been working on. His name is Nos. He's a young fellow who's won a lot of prizes, and he's written two out of three calf boys. And it's just lovely. I can't recommend him highly enough. I just presented, and people wanted to know if he was translated, and he's not translated in English yet. But his artwork is just wonderful, and he's dealing with contemporary themes in a Western setting, dysfunctional families. He shows two brothers, one of them who's got an alcohol problem, and it's just full of compassion, and it's just lovely. It's a lovely series. I can't wait for the third. It's coming out this year. There's the clanging of the Chuck Wagon Triangle friends telling me it's time to wrap up this episode with some shootouts and shoutouts. Chris and Tony, I thank you for sharing your expertise with me on this episode, as well as your love for the Western genre. Please, you have an open invitation to come back anytime. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thanks to our Six Gun Justice podcast Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the donate button at the top of our website, sixgunjustice.com. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride. Let's ride.